This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Free FM 89.0. Now we present Big Things Ahead, a Free FM series in which Paul Barlow tackles the big things facing Kirikiriroa Hamilton. The Three Waters reforms, representation, growth, infrastructure, iwi and youth participation in decision making, and climate change. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and search for Big Things Ahead. Welcome to Big Things Ahead a new series on Free FM examining some of the big changes coming to Kirikiriroa Hamilton that have the potential to change the way the city looks, grows and feels in the future. I'm Paul Barlow and each episode we'll look at a big issue and explore the potential benefits and pitfalls of these changes. I'll talk to the decision makers involved and to people and organisations with different perspectives on the issues at hand to bring you a balanced look at the way that these changes could change the shape of the city in the future. In this episode, we're looking at the positive potential benefits of the proposed Three Waters reform, and you'll find a separate episode looking at the potential negative outcomes from those reforms, and we'll take a look at the facts behind all of the political rhetoric. You can download this and other episodes from our website, freefm.org.nz, or wherever you find great podcasts. So let's start with the basics. Three Waters refers to our drinking, waste, and stormwater. What comes out the tap? what gets flushed, and what goes down the drain in the street. In Havelock North in 2016, surface water got contaminated with sheep feces, which led to an outbreak of Campylobacter and E. coli within their main water supply, which was a bore supply, water bought up from the ground. That resulted in over 5,000 people getting sick and three unfortunate deaths because of the poison in the water. Since then, Havelock North has also issued half a dozen water safety statements, essentially saying you've got to boil the water before you can use it to make sure it's safe. This prompted the government to look at how water infrastructure around the country worked and why some parts of the country, like Havelock North, for example, which has a small rating base and a large area to cover, can't necessarily afford the sort of infrastructure that you'd find in built-up urban areas, and how they could go about creating something that would allow a much more even spread of those costs to ensure better water quality for everybody. The government estimates up to 31,000 people a year are getting sick from contaminated water without even realising it. The government is proposing the creation of four mega-entities to look after these waters all over the country. At the moment, there are 67 local authorities who all manage these services in their own way, as well as other parties who all have a say or an interest in how water works, including regional councils and iwi. Some, like Kirikiriroa, do this really well and have recently invested a lot to ensure the services work well. Nobody's denying the need to be able to work together to try and work out better ways of controlling water and maintaining its safety. As you can see here in this clip with Councillor Mark Bunting, followed up by a clip with Councillor Dave McPherson, who are both on opposite sides of the debate on this, but can both see from their perspectives why it's important to work together on these issues. You know, we we have been told by staff that we've done a pretty good job. Water is always going to be expensive. And there's uh, Tomata Arawai, which is a which is a water entity that's just started up, which is great. And they are setting the standard higher and higher and higher 
for their expectations of water. Now, our council have assured us that it's going to be expensive. But for those smaller councils that don't have such a high rating base, it's not so much the tolongas that uh, that worry me. It's more the, the down the tikawitis and the those areas that don't have the rating base or the capacity to to help out. Uh, is a bit of a dead end or a very expensive uh, exercise if you can't if you don't sort of work together as a group. So, and our council's been trying to work together with the surrounding ones on three waters for a few years now, um, not yet successfully but we were sort of making a little bit of progress so this is an extension of that it's not beyond the realm it's a bigger area than we we thought would take it in so the more councils the less influence is, is one of the worries here but others like wellington haven't we've all seen footage of the burst sewage pipes from around their city some places have a built-up population to be able to invest in this infrastructure, but many rural regions like Otarahonga or Teikawiti do not, where low population numbers are spread throughout several smaller communities, increasing the costs of these services for everyone. And for some smaller communities where they don't actually have wastewater infrastructure, everybody's reliant on things like septic tanks, those costs around wastewater seem kind of redundant to the locals, who feel that they shouldn't have to pay for these things. But it's not just Hamilton City Council that's having issues about paying for other parts of the country. Interestingly enough, Waipa um, are saying they're worried that they're going to be subsidising Hamilton. So <laughs> everyone's worried about subsidising everybody else. And for many local authorities, the infrastructure itself is ageing and will need heavy investment to ensure that they can handle population growth. In fact, talking to Councillor Dave McPherson, it became really apparent how this kind of model is an issue for Hamilton, especially when you're looking at how much subdivision is being done and how much extra pressure that puts on infrastructure within the city at the moment. We are getting to the point where we need a second poo plant second wastewater plant servicing the southern third of Hamilton is sort of what's being talked about because we're restricted from growth, we're restricted from having what's called wet industry, high water use industries, because um, they we can't cope with the wastewater that comes out of those industries. We've actually got a moratorium on that at the moment. Um, we Everyone that comes with a subdivision of more than half a dozen houses, we have to assess whether we've got room in, in the current plant, even though we're upgrading that. So um, we're going to have to build that sort of stuff. But if we're sharing the costs with a with an entity that's got four or five times Hamilton's population, then we're, we're spreading the load. We'll build another one here. We may build another one in Wanganui. We may build one over in the Bay of Plenty. But, but you know, the costs of all that are shared. And some of the stuff I've seen from the UK, which has been quite interesting, not from England, but from Wales and Scotland, shows that that's quite an efficient way to do your infrastructure, even if it's still servicing a particular area to share the financing costs widely. So there's, there's that, that's going to be a big winner. I've seen that you can, if you write your, um, they call it uh, Articles of Association, Constitution of the New Entity, Company, whatever it's called. If you write them correctly and they, they're forced to have a social conscience, as it were, to not be not-for-profit not organisations to plough back any surpluses into improved infrastructure and reduced um, charges to consumers, for instance, you can actually end up with, like you can, 
not always, but you can end up with lower costs. And that's actually happened in some, you know, Wales, for instance, will be looking at what's happened with what's called Welsh water over there. And that that's certainly working for them like that. Plus, because they're, um, have, have they, that economy of scale, they've got about 3 million people in their area. Um, they are able to actually borrow at a lower interest rate. Uh, than than any other council area over there, I should say, and um, certainly you could do the same here. Borrow borrow more cheaply if it's a bit of sound. Always sound like an oxymoron to me. <laughs> On top of that ability to borrow at lower interest rates, these new entities will have higher debt ceilings and longer payback times to make it cheaper in the long run to pay for and maintain water infrastructure around the region which means that costs overall for everyone in Entity B will eventually go down. But those costs going down aren't going to be an immediate issue. Some estimates have said that costs would increase significantly once this new model takes over, and a couple of councils in Northland have already estimated at least a 300% increase in their costs. Now, it should be pointed out that Northland is going to be grouped in with Auckland, whereas the Waikato and the entire Entity B is a much bigger different organisation. Auckland has Watercare, which has been maintaining its water supplies at an arm's length from council for some years now, and has on the whole actually done a pretty good job of it so far. But it's not necessarily a model that's going to work for down here. And in particular, it highlights the issue that you've got a whole bunch of different ownership models from different parts of the country around their water infrastructure. Waikato District Council, for example, uses Watercare Waikato as their master service for water management. And it's essentially an offshoot of the one from Auckland, but it means that their model is different to what Kitty Kirira Hamilton has, which is different to what Waipa has. So you can see already just in this small area around the city how diverse an issue this is going to end up being. However, when it comes to the assets, that's where things get a little bit more complicated. Ownership of the infrastructure will remain with the local authorities, which makes up on average about 30% of the assets currently owned by councils, meaning their ability to borrow for future regional development is not negatively affected. In fact, it will help increase the local authorities' ability to borrow, because part of this deal includes Entity B buying the debt that councils have from the creation of their current water infrastructure. It's kind of like your parents paying off the last few payments on the car you financed. Only in this case, it's much, much wetter. There's a whole lot of the current debt we've got will be taken off our books, um, but and and so will the revenue that we charge and rates and that. But we we can borrow. It'll be sort of dollar for dollar, a dollar of debt taken off, a, do, um, a dollar of sort of rates revenue taken off. We can actually allowed to borrow for future infrastructure in all areas, other areas than water, we're allowed to borrow up to 280% of what we so we $2.80 for every dollar in the other areas. So it's actually going to um, look, I can't remember the figure, but Rob Pascoe calculated uh, how much extra, and it was quite a lot of million dollars extra over the current 10-year period that we would have. It doesn't say we would borrow it, but it frees us up to do some stuff that uh, social stuff and transport stuff that we haven't been able to potentially um, if, it, if that comes off our books. 
Of course, if you look at the paper trail and the money side of things, there are some benefits that are being touted there from the government reports. The tricky part, though, is making sure that you've still got the people to be able to go out there and maintain the infrastructure. Because as much as you restructure things at the top, nothing's going to work if you don't have the people who can do the actual work. So the government has guaranteed that anybody currently working in the water service industries in any of those three areas will be insured that same job with the same pay rates under this new entity structure. And at the same time, they've promised to increase the number of people working by about about 9,000 jobs. Recently on Q&A, local government minister Nanaya Mahuta explained why that situation was. So here's a clip from that show for you. Well, because you actually need a local footprint to be able to deliver the services for councils. And what we've said is that the current system is not working. You've got 67 territorial authorities delivering water services, and we have not uh, been able to receive the full benefit of scale and aggregation, which will deliver certainty in terms of long-term asset management and investment in the system. It will professionalise the workforce. It will secure local employment because you do need people in your local communities delivering uh, the water services Mm. that consumers and households so desperately need. But more importantly, we'll move beyond investing in repairs, renewals and maintenance to actually providing for growth. Mm. And that's what all regions will need if we want to provide more housing, secure better opportunities for industry coming into our regions. And that's why we're carrying on with the reform. Now, it's fair to say that there should be no conversation about the use of water within Hamilton City itself without bringing up the importance of water meters. Hamilton City is one of the last major urban areas to fight the use of private water meters at individual houses. Auckland has had it for a while and most other urban centres have it as well. So by handing over the power to a large entity like Entity B, there's a lot of questions around whether or not that entity will be able to enforce people to be able to have water meters or not have water meters and just how much say a council is going to have on that particular decision. So I hit up both Councillor Mark Bunting and Councillor Dave McPherson to get their views on exactly how this is going to roll out because it's a very important issue for Hamiltonians. It's been an election issue for the last couple of election cycles. Here's a simple thing. They're going to do what is the technically the right thing for the entity. Whereas, look, you know, water meters, it could be argued, could have been in town two or three terms ago, but because it was such a brouhaha, the community was able to make a difference and say, no, we'll mind our water, we'll be good, we, won't, we don't want water meters. <sighs> That's my concern about this is now, say they put water meters in and say, guess what? You're going to get water meters. Who are you going to call? It's not going to be your councillor because we won't be able to do jack squat. Um, And that's my main worry is that um, soon uh, renters who are technically paying for their water through their rent are now going to get, if there's water meter, they'll get the volumetric water bill as well. And so suddenly you're not only paying your rent, you get a water bill as well. And that's going to affect their lower socioeconomic areas uh, um, big time. And, you know, I'm working real hard to try and even the scale for the, you know, for the um, for the deprivation. That's an, yeah, that's an absolute red hearing that question. I hear it raised all the time. Yeah. Um, mostly directed at me because of course. I, yeah, <laughs> I've still got my no water meter signs. I <laughs> Um, I've got quite a few of them. You might see them popping up. Um, (laughs) First thing I say is the closest Hamilton's ever come to water meters was under the current system. We nearly got them, and it was took an election campaign and a change of council 
um, five years ago to stop that happening. So there's no guarantee under the current system that you won't get water meters. Um, there isn't a guarantee under the new one either. Um, but you can write in things like into the Constitution, for instance, that the method of charging must be decided by the local area or the local council or something like that to put that that decision back in the hands of Hamilton, for instance. Um, there are some people that have said uh, it's going to mean water meters because everyone should be charged the same. I, I don't mind a water meter at the entrance to Hamilton where the water pipe comes across our mm -hmm. boundary, one bloody great water meter, <laughs> and they charge Hamilton. How we divvy up that, leave it up to us to decide. The management of it may happen through the new water entity. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be water meters. Um, that's always a danger under whatever system you have, I'd say. And um, I, I love it when people bring up water meters because I say, thanks very much. You've saved me 10000 on my next election campaign. I'll just <laughs> dig out the old signs. Both of these councillors are approaching the same issue from different angles, but at the core of it is very much a case of how do we ensure Hamiltonians are charged in the way that feels the fairest to them for water that they use. So you, you might know this already, but some houses in Hamilton already have water meters installed. Uh, generally, your newer suburbs are going to have them because it's part of the building consent process. It doesn't mean that you're charged for the water that you're using, but if the model changes, then at least that's one cost that you don't have to worry about later on down the line. There are regions already that have a mixed model in place, which means that some places have water meters which they're charged for and some places don't. Wipar is actually the closest representative to Hamilton that has that particular model. Cambridge homes have water meters, Te Awamutu homes do not. And obviously they want to keep that particular model in place if they go under Entity B. And Wipar has come out not been a big fan of the, how this whole thing is set up for the same reasons actually that a lot of the councillors in Hamilton have had for wanting to ensure that they're around the table. They don't believe at the moment that they're going to have much of a say in how this entity is set up and managed. And that is a completely understandable feeling, particularly when you've got 22 local councils involved around six seats. So that is a particular issue that needs to be looked into. And if you have a look on the other episode that we've done on the negative outcomes or the negative effects, we actually explore that a lot more in that episode because it is something that is a very serious concern. Here's all the feedback we've got. And there's things about governance, model debt, um, transference, harmonization, all this sort of stuff. Despite having some serious concerns around the structure of how these things are going to be organised, it does raise a really important point about the fact that reforms are coming, whether councils like it or not. So there is a question as to how involved councils need to be. And uh, Nanaya Mahuta was asked again on Q&A about what point do you get to where you have to decide between yep, following the, these sort of conversations through and making sure that the reforms are, are working for everybody versus it being mandated. And for me, her answer was actually really interesting because it does get to a point where the, she's putting it in, in very clear terms, changes are coming. So make sure you're at the table to, to have your say. Uh, so have a listen to this clip and see exactly what her perspective is on everything around this particular issue. 
So we've been working really hard with local government New Zealand mm. and also with Taituara uh, to ensure that there was an eight-week period and that was signalled at the local government conference in July so that councils would have good time to understand the information, the modelling, be able to assess what the benefits are back to their ratepayers and residents and consumers and to ensure that we were having the right conversation. I think a few councils signalled too early that they were out without trying to really understand the depth of the information, mm. I think it would be unsustainable for councils to expect that the status quo can continue, but importantly that the government would be in a position to put money into the status quo situation mm. without further efficiencies. There's also been a lot said about how governance will work for these entities and how much say iwi will have. While the government has laid out a multi-level structure for governance where councils and iwi will select a board, that board selects impartial experts to then select the board to manage the entities, this is the area the government has said needs the most consultation to get right. They want to avoid a situation where partisan politics can be detrimental to the outcomes and balance that with ensuring the fundamentals of te tiriti or waitangi are met. Um, that's, that's definitely a concern. Um, and that's what, in fact, I and some others met with Nanaya on a recent Zoom call, um, particularly to discuss our concerns in that area. And one of the things she said, which was hopeful but not definitive, was that um, they are more than willing to hear alternative suggestions for council. And I've put up a proposal as a sort of heads of agreement type thing without the, the details issue, we do something like the Hamilton Airport Company, which has five councils joined together as joint owners. No one council, not even Hamilton, has a majority say. We have to get at least one other council on side, and we nearly always try and get consensus amongst all five. Uh, but, but we can decide collectively what happens there? It's not two steps removed, appointing a panel who then appoint a board and things like that. Um, In fact, the most common feedback that the government got when it put this out to councils for feedback was around that proposed structure of how this was going to be managed. And in response, the government has actually made a couple of changes to the process for getting this up and running. Now, recently, Nanaya Mahuta stood up and said at a press conference that they are going ahead with it. And this caused a whole bunch of outrage around people stealing our assets. But what she was actually signalling was the fact that the government was going to continue going ahead with a process that was laid out far earlier in the year, June, July, before the local government New Zealand conference. In that conference, they were given, all local authorities were given, a timeline breakdown of how this was going to go. And essentially it was, you've got two months to go and get everything ready to give us your feedback. We'll have three weeks where we sit down and we go through what that feedback is. By the end of October, we'll decide whether or not we're going to be going ahead with reforms. This process isn't due to wind up until near the end of 2024, and it still has to go through two select committee processes, as well as open feedback for the public, as well as more feedback coming in from interested parties, such as iwi, councils, um, regional councils. Everybody who has a say in this has a chance to actually go out and have a say in it. The really weird thing for me is sitting down and watching all these press conferences and everybody freaking out and going, no, 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 land grab, oh, this isn't what we wanted, or posting up on social media, trying to inflame the process. But there's a really simple reality here in that people were told what the process was going to be. And that's exactly what the government has done. 
<clears throat> and if they might not like it, and there are certainly issues around the time frame that they've had, at the same time, the information that was presented to council was peer-reviewed three times by different organisations, and it came up saying that this was the best model for the fairest, most equitable outcome. So there's definitely a lot of work that's gone in to make sure that this isn't a model that works for everybody. What really is the crux of the problem here, and with all the negative press and all the negative coverage that it gets, is that you've got some organisations that have done really, really well, and you've got some organisations that haven't. And those that have done really well are quite rightly proud of what they've done and don't want to step away and hand it over to somebody else who could screw it up. At the same time, those that haven't done well, who don't have the rating base, who don't have the resources to go out and make this work, they're understandably a little concerned about putting their faith and their trust in the hands of bigger parties who have shown no interest in what they're doing. This is a massive issue, not just because it's our water, which is a basic human right. It's about making sure that everything is equitable and fair, but also consistent. And this does require some large, bold plans from the government, which is exactly what the government is doing. At no point in time have they said that this process wasn't going to continue. They've looked at over 60 different options and different models for trying to make water services, all water services, work specifically for these organizations while trying to ensure that everybody has fresh water to deal with, everybody's wastewater is dealt with, and everything gets taken away when it needs to be taken away and treated and then recycled or whatever it is that they decide to do with it, however they take care of it. So what we're looking at now is a situation where the government has said, yeah, we're doing this. We are making big, bold changes because you're always going to have some organizations that are quite happy to continue doing things the way that they are doing it. And for some organizations, that's really good. And for other organizations, that requires a lot of work, a lot of work. It's really important, though, that this is a government-led organization or government-led movement and change, because any one council, any one individual body that has control over this is automatically going to make it about what is best for them. And yeah, there are some big questions around how even something like Region B or, or Entity B works when you've got so many diverse models already in play. But that doesn't mean that it can't work. What it means is that it requires a lot of effort over a year worth of consultation to find ways that are going to work, that are going to be equitable for everyone and to ensure everybody gets what they need out of it. It's definitely not fair that somebody who, work, who lives on a septic tank has to pay for wastewater in another part of the country. But at the same time, another part of the country is paying for those people to have fresh water to drink. It ends up balancing out a lot better. And ultimately, and this is, I think, something that a lot of people forget, this is something that's been put in place to save lives. Because while we might take water for granted, it is definitely a basic human right. And when something goes wrong, something can go really wrong, as they found out in Havelock North in 2016. It's a terrible tragedy when people lose their lives. It's even worse when this is something that could have been avoided and this is something that the government is trying to avoid from happening. It's definitely not going to sit well with everybody. And we'll look at that again in our next episode, which is looking at the cons and the downsides of the three waters reforms. Because don't get me wrong, there are definitely a few there that people need to be concerned about. One of the other things that you need to make sure that you're doing is trying to cut through the rhetoric. It's really easy to get swept up in the emotive issues that get presented as big, bad, scary things. And water being a basic human right is one of those things that people get really worked up about 
and can be played up quite a bit. There's some really detailed information on what these proposals are available on the New Zealand government websites, but also on the local government New Zealand website, which is an overarching organisation that looks after and coordinates all local government around the country. The really good thing about that site is it gives you a breakdown of what the timeframes were that were suspected to be happening or what, what the actual proposed timeframes were, which everybody in local government got. So when they turn around and go, oh, we're shocked that the government's going ahead with this, they knew it was coming. It was always on the cards. It's been on the cards for months. So it's really important to go out there and do some proper research into this, not just listen to the rhetoric that you find on social media. All right, that's us pretty much done for this week. Our next episode is going to be looking at those negative and downsides of the Three Waters reforms, because it is a big issue, and it's not all rosy clear stuff coming out the tap. So join me next time, or download the podcast from freefm.org.nz, where we have a look at what some of the negative potential outcomes could be from the Three Waters reforms. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Big Things Ahead is a free FM podcast. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.